We have been spending the last few weeks, the last several weeks really, in the book of Job. And I'll catch you up in 10 seconds. Job is a super rich guy. He's got camels on camels on camels. And he was righteous, he was good, and he, uh, he was good in the eyes of God. And that's really important to remember. But that's it, period. He, he was good. And I've actually had a really, really fun time wrestling in these passages with you all. Uh, I really enjoyed kind of talking through these and processing through these over the last few months. Because these are a lot of like really uh, deep moral questions that we're wrestling with here that oftentimes we feel like go unanswered and then they even sometimes we feel like they go unanswered in the Bible. And so we're talking about them and we really can't conclude anything sometimes. But it is cool to wrestle with them and it's fun and we hope that this series has been good for you to ask difficult questions. But... Uh, this book's been a lot of fun for me, and thankfully, over the next few weeks, it's going to be taking a turn for the better. Uh, as we've seen, since Job has lost all of his possessions, his health, his wealth, his family, he has been given all of these just crap explanations for why he is the way <clears throat> that he is. Most of the reasoning that we've heard is just not good. Uh, we've been hearing these half-truths from all his friends, and some of the friends... Some of what the friends have said sounded good, obviously, because they're half-truths. So some of them sound like they're like really rooted biblical ideas, but then the other half just sounds really garbage. They've crafted this image in our minds that God does good things to us whenever we want them, and then God does bad things to the people that are evil, the people that we don't like. Uh, and that <clears throat> we've seen this idea that, that karma is, is very present in this, this situation that they've set up of God where God runs on a basis of karma, where uh, bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people, and so if bad things happen to you, you must be bad. And <laughs> back when we kind of first talked about karma, I, I told you to imagine the scenario where your heart was broken and then your dad died, and then your dog got killed, and then you got stung by bees, and it's because you were evil. And it's all of those terrible things happening that you could not comprehend happening all at once, but they happen because you're evil. Bad things happen to bad people. That was Eliphaz's MO. That's what I talked about a few weeks ago. But each friend said something ultimately really similar. Each friend attempted to exonerate God to make God righteous, which is, feels like a noble pursuit, but they tried to make God righteous by putting Job down, by telling him that he was evil and he had deserved it. And they thought that they were honoring God in doing so. They thought that they were doing something good in having these conversations. At the beginning of the book, I'll remind you that once Job goes through all of these afflictions, he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. He says that God gave me everything and I owe it all to him. God can give and God can take. He was saying all those things. And those are truly just remarkable responses. And I want to honor Job in saying that because I'm going to drag him through the mud a little bit, but I want to point that he has some amazing humility and love for God in that response. When everybody around him died and his body was just deteriorating, he responded in honor to God. And like I said, at the beginning of Job, the author told us that he was righteous but here we see the result of being a sinful human. Job is righteous, but he's still sinful. 
And the author pointed out that what happened to Job was not a result of his sin, but we see sin come out of this, and that's what we're going to point out a little bit today. All of his friends, all of Job's friends, come around him in support. We see this mental shift happen, though, in, in Job's mind. It's very subtle, and it's so subtle that we don't even really realize why God rebukes Job at the end of the book, because we see chapter 1, he's righteous. Chapter 42, God rebukes Job. And there's something that happens in the middle there. But, God, but Job ultimately goes from praising God in his affliction to being rebuked. And we haven't talked about it a whole ton in this series, but Job's friends and his sin, Job's own sin, make Job self-centered. Over time, Job slowly shifts from this idea of God is great to I'm not bad. And he's not intentionally doing that. It's not like something that he, he was trying to be selfish, but he was defending himself. And Job's friends are accusing him of being this terrible person over and over again. Job is now forced to say, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't deserve this. I promise you there is nothing that I am hiding. I am not bad. He's no longer saying that God is great. He's now saying that I'm not bad. There are two mostly correct statements. The statement that God is great is true, and the fact that I am not evil, what Job is saying, it was true. But now there's the shift from selflessness to selfishness, and we don't really hear it explicitly because it's covered up by Job's defense for himself. I'm going to submit that though Job did not sin in chapter 1, when everything happened, when everything went down, he did, however, have a shift, and he sinned in his heart throughout all these debates. And that's why God rebukes him, and that's why at the end, Job repents. And the shift to selfishness is where Elihu steps in. And he's our main character of the story here, or of this, uh, this passage today. Elihu is truly a little weird. He's never associated with any of Job's three friends. He's never introduced to the story. He's never asked to speak. God never speaks to him. He's just mysterious. We don't really know why he's there or uh, what's going on. We just kind of assume that he's, he's been there. And on top of that, people almost like 50-50 believe that either Elihu was this like mouthpiece of God and he was speaking like really great truths or he's like so wrong that he's just completely blaspheming God and is spewing heresy. There's people that believe both sides of that, which I'm not going to lie, it's kind of weird to have like people so polarized on that, especially when we have literally everything Elihu said recorded. So in theory, we should be able to figure it out. The problem with that is that the book of Job you've been reading along at all, is a little hard to follow sometimes. And the last, what, like 29 chapters have been so full of this poetry, of circular arguments, of complaining, of defense, of, uh, of prosecution. It's just been this really weird book. And so it's easy to get lost in the weeds. And Elihu's words can just get bunched in there. And he also goes to a lot of the same conclusions that the rest of the friends come to. Elihu concludes that Job has sinned, just like every other friend. 
We'll see here Eliphaz. He said, Job has sinned. Chapter 4, verse 7, 15, 4 through 6, 22, 5. Bildad said the same thing in 8, 5 through 6, 18, 4. Zophar, same thing. Elihu, same thing. They all came to the conclusion that Job has sinned. But the difference is that Elihu does something different with that information. He's doing something different with the conclusion that he came to. And so our big idea today is that Elihu may have been right. (laughs) And that is the big idea. And it's likely one of the most soft big ideas that you've ever seen. But Elihu may have been right. And I say may so that I can protect myself in like 10 years. But I'm going to give four reasons why I think that he was right. Number one, the author devotes six chapters to writing about Elihu. We just listened to 29 chapters, and obviously the chapters weren't there, the chapter numbers weren't there when the Bible was originally written, but space-wise, the author devoted a ton of space. We just listened to 29 chapters about these friends arguing. They have gone in circles, but they've spent about three chapters each telling Job why he's in the wrong, and then Job takes some time to give a rebuttal. Eliphaz is taking a huge step up here, and it, it we're seeing some sort of climax happen in the story. Number two, Elihu aims to say something different than the three friends. In Job 32, 2-3, he says that almost explicitly. He says, I aim to say something different. And I may sound like a bit of a non-Bible scholar here, but the past four weeks talking about all the friends and what they told Job, they have sounded nearly the exact same because... They're very, very similar. They say, Job, you did something bad. God doesn't do bad things to good people, so you must be bad. God could not break that mold. And Elihu is stepping outside of that circle, and he's planning to say something different in his argument against Job. Number three, Job does not dispute what Elihu says. After Elihu gives his six-chapter speech, God immediately speaks after that. And I will hold that Job may have been interrupted by God and however set up this happened, but God also could have spoken immediately after any other friend talked. But I believe that since Job did not respond and he did not try to defend himself, he may have heard something that changed his mind. He may have heard something that was actually right. And number four, I think this is truly the most important point, is that Elihu is not rebuked by God. I think that's incredibly important because God spends a ton of time in this book rebuking these people. Uh, So if we look at Job 42 together, uh, we'll see this passage where uh, the Lord is ready to speak. And he's just spoken to Job. And now the Lord says to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. God says, Eliphaz, you and your two friends have not spoken the truth about me. 
He doesn't even mention Elihu in any of this. And Elihu is not rebuked by God. So here's the thing. I think Elihu's right. I've already said that. My big idea is that he may have gotten it right. But that being said, there are so many people who disagree. And I I think that's okay. I heard on Monday somebody told me that they think that Elihu was so wrong that God did not want to waste his time on rebuking him, which, you know, that is an argument. And I think that people carry some validity to that. But because, once again, I'm not the smartest person in the world, I'm going to act like both things could be true. I'm going to hold them both charitably. And we can walk to this conversation thinking that either Elihu could have been completely wrong or completely right or somewhere in between. And so we're going to talk about a few things Elihu said. We're going to practice what's called hermeneutics together. Can everybody say hermeneutics? Hermeneutics. Uh, That's the word. It's a really fancy word. Hermeneutics is both the science and the arts of biblical interpretation. It's how we interpret the Bible. It's why we do it. It's all wrapped in one, and it's the method by which we do it. So part of our hermeneutic, part of the scientific method that we use to understand the Bible is that if there is a difficult to understand passage or book in the Bible, we, we can go to other places in the Bible that have maybe better, easier to understand passages, and we can hold those alongside the passage that's a little bit harder to understand, and we can see if it's true. Uh, it's like if you were to have an eyewitness to a robbery, and uh, one of the eyewitnesses is just a little bit shaken up, can't really get a story straight, and so you go to another witness, and you kind of hold them alongside each other, and you say, okay, you know, this, these two stories line up. We can maybe fill in some gaps with what this person can't say. Uh, and it's not necessarily that the biblical author couldn't say it. It's just that we're in a different context, and it's different for us to read it. So in this case, since people agree differently on whether Elihu was right or wrong, we're going to look at some of the things Elihu said and does, and we're going to supplement them with other parts of the Bible that we know are correct. So, we're going to look at three things that I believe Elihu did right, and we'll go from there. Number one, Elihu was slow to speak. Like I mentioned before, it's kind of unknown when Elihu showed up in this whole thing. Uh, He's never introduced. He wasn't a part of the three friends that came at the beginning. He just spoke, and we're all supposed to know who he is and why he was there. But He's heard the 29 chapters of just garbage that the last three friends have been spewing, and he's heard every single one of Job's rebuttals, and he has waited patiently until it's his time to speak. In chapter 32, Elihu goes on and on about what he's observed over the last however long in in these massive arguments. And he spends really a chapter talking about what he observes and what he feels. He says like he's a wineskin about to burst and he just needs to talk because he's been hearing so much stuff. And this is pretty much Elihu's like wind-up chapter. In uh, 32, verse 11 through 14, we can read that Elihu says, Look, I waited for your conclusions. I listened to your insights as you sought for words. I paid close attention to you. Yet no one proved Job wrong. Not one of you refuted his arguments. 
So do not claim we have found wisdom. Let God deal with him, not man. But Job has not directed his argument to me, and I will not respond to him with your arguments. That's saying once again that he's ready to say something different. But Elihu has waited patiently. He has let everybody see their case. He has observed them. He has listened. He's thought about it. He's paid close attention. And this is incredibly biblical. James 1.19, very famous passage, says, My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Sometimes, sometimes, we as Christians are pretty bad at hearing this command. I'm not saying all of you, but at least some of you. We're not that great at hearing this command. We have this reputation, American Christians, I might even generalize a little bit. We have this reputation of being the ones who just have to get their opinions out because they need to tell everybody what they know. And I think it's true. I think that's a, no, like, that is a correct sometimes reputation of us. And I think at sometimes it's hurting the church and our witness pretty bad because we just need to tell somebody that they're a sinner. But what's cool is that we, as followers of Jesus, if we are quick to listen and we're slow to speak and slow to anger, people notice because they don't expect it. One of the easiest ways that you can be a great witness and have a great witness to the people around you is by listening to them. Ask them great questions in moments that they are sharing with you. And that's what Elihu clearly did here. He was slow to speak and quick to listen. Okay, the next one. Elihu got angry when he saw God belittled. Anger is a very interesting emotion. Most of the time, most of the time, it's not right to be angry when somebody cuts you off in traffic and you want to show them your ring finger or something. Um, that's not good anger. And I think we could all hopefully admit that. But when you see injustice in the world and you're angry at evil, that is good anger. So there are times where, there is, where people are controlled by their anger, they're controlled by their emotions, and it's unrighteous anger, and then there is righteous, good anger. When you're angry at a gospel-level issue, like God being belittled in the scenario with Elihu, that's righteous anger. When Christ goes into the temple and he sees people ripping off, he sees the religious elite ripping off those who are trying to follow God by, by charging them high, high rates on, their, on the uh, money conversions, and they're charging a ton on the sacrificial items. He flips the tables And as Wyatt said, he flipped everybody off in the process. I didn't say it. And that is righteous anger. But we see here that Elihu is showing righteous anger. Verse 2 and 3 of Job 32, the author is prefacing Elihu. It's part of the small introduction that we get to uh, Elihu as a speaker. Uh, It says, then he became angry 
He was angry at Job because he had justified himself rather than God. That's kind of what I was talking about earlier. With Job was then just defending himself by trying to prove himself innocent instead of exalting God. Elihu was also angry at Job's three friends because they had failed to refute him and yet had condemned him. He was angry because people were accusing Job incorrectly. Elihu has seen all these arguments and he was angry because he saw God being belittled. And finally, the part that we're probably going to have the easiest time uh, consuming is that Elihu did not take age into account. Elihu was actually quite confused by this. It seems like in chapter 32, he thought that these friends' age would actually be to their benefit. He says, I thought that age should speak and maturity should teach wisdom. He's saying that he had this preconceived idea that these, these friends who are uh, significantly older than Elihu, he thought that these friends, because they were older, that they would be right and they would be wiser and they would have more insight in this scenario. But after he listens, he, he says that he, it makes no sense. He says, it is not only the old who are wise or elderly or who understand how to judge. Therefore, I say, listen to me. I too will declare what I know. He's saying that, look, I'm, I'm young. I get that. But I think I have something to offer here because I've heard what you've said and it's just not right. He says, I thought that you were smart because you're so old, so I listened to you. But now I'm hearing that your age is not giving you anything. There's a passage that we also love uh, in 1 Timothy 4, I believe it's verse 12. And Paul is writing to Timothy, who's another young guy, just like Elihu. And Paul says to Timothy, do not let anybody look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. I will add that with that verse, just how old people don't get a free wisdom pass and they just get to say anything and say that it's true. Young people do not get a free respect pass just because they're young and they have 1 Timothy 4.12 on their side. Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy that you best not give a reason to people who give a reason to people to say that, oh, he or she is just so young. Like, don't give anyone a chance to discount you because of your age. He says instead, act in maturity and the fruits of the Spirit and people will not be able to use your age against you. But the idea that removing age from this equation is biblical. Biblical truths are biblical truths no matter the age of the person who's saying them. They are just biblical truths, period. And that's what Elihu does here. Elihu does not take age into account. So let's sum this all up. Elihu speaks for the longest in this book than any of the other friends. He aims to say something different than the last three friends. Job doesn't argue against him, and God does not rebuke him. And even if Elihu is wrong, we used hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, say hermeneutics. It's such a fun word, come on. Uh, he, we used hermeneutics to look at why Elihu may have said at least a few things that were right. We've seen that Job slowly became a little bit twisted from a God-fearing man 
to a self-centered one. And that's not to say that he just totally set aside God, but he was so focused on defending himself that he forgot about God. And next week, we're going to see God's response to all that. And it's about to go down. So, in your small group time, I want you to open up the book of Job again, just like we did on Sunday. And I want you to find a few things that Elihu said. I talked mainly in this time about some things that he did or some attributes that he had, but I want you to look at what he said. And I want you to test them and see if they're right. I want you to see if what Elihu is saying is trustworthy. Because this is one of the more debated topics in this book. And I want you to look at what he said about God and why we know it's right. So I invite the worship team up. We're going to finish off in a few songs. And I want you to head to your small groups with that in mind. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this time that we were able to share together. And I thank you that we are able to be so consistent and to be here each week to worship you. And I just praise you for how much of a blessing that is. And we thank you so much for that. Lord, I pray that as we move out of high school, as we go into college, that you will teach us how to analyze your word, how to analyze what people say about your word, and that we may test it in the Bible, and that we may see where the truth is found. Lord, we love you so much. We need your grace. We need your mercy. Because without it, we are nothing. In your name we pray. Amen.